0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Women's History via the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Davis. Today, we will be speaking with Professor Honoré Fanon Jeffers, poet and professor of English at the University of Oklahoma. We're going to chat with her about her recent publication, just came out in March 2020, a volume of poetry entitled The Age of Phyllis, which portrays the life and times of Phyllis Wheatley Peters with careful attention. To the archival record. Professor Honore Jeffers, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. And please feel free to call me Honore. I will do that. Thank you. Would you mind starting us off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background?
1: Um, Well, I've been a publishing poet for 23 years. Uh, My first poem was published in 1997. My first book was published in 2020. And um, I've been what most people would call a confessional poet, uh, which means that I tend to write about myself. But um, over the past uh, now 16 years, um, I began to be very interested in the archives and the historical archives and the lives of early African-Americans. And so that's how I got involved in this, um, long, but, um, wonderful process, uh, um, in um, writing about Phyllis Wheatley Peters.
0: Oh, great. Could you, could you tell us just a little bit about how you came to this particular project?
1: Well, in 2003, um, I've been at University of Oklahoma since 2002. Um, I'm a deep Southerner, and uh, you probably can tell that from my voice. And I came (laughs) to Oklahoma for the job. Um, But I've always been really interested in history, uh, particularly early African-American history. But it it never really was... um, Focused, I should say. So I would just sort of, you know, encounter random things. I, you know, start reading about them, and um, and and you know that that's just kind of how I did things. But in two thousand and three, I read an um, article in the New Yorker by uh, the great Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. Mm-hmm. at Harvard of Harvard University and he was talking about um who I then knew as Phyllis Wheatley um and uh the implications of African Americans um in the enlightenment period how uh black people africans and Uh, on, you know, in Africa and on this side of the water and how they were viewed by um, philosophers of the Enlightenment period. And he had included Thomas Jefferson in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had never really known, um, certainly, um, you know, it was kind of well known in, in Black circles, even not even in academic circles, but just Black circles that Thomas Jefferson had um, sired, as it were, (laughs) children with uh, Sally Hemings. But I had not known his very um, ugly attitudes about uh, people of African descent. And so um, until I encountered uh, this, this essay in The New Yorker, and I had not known his ugly attitudes towards Phyllis Wheatley uh at that time. That's how I knew her. and so i I just began to be very fascinated. uh you know, I reread the article and and then it just sent me on a reading jag. And um, yeah, I began to, to read other books. Um, one in particular that was very, very important to me is Catherine Clay-Bessard's um, Spiritual Interrogations, Culture, Gender, and Community in Early African American Women's Writing. Um, that, that was just, and what she did was she talked about the child who would be renamed Phyllis Wheatley and her middle passage journey. Right. And and that sort of opened up um a lot for me.
0: And that really I mean that really opens up the the book, right? Um the mm-hmm. the poems that um that really help us to kind of enter into that world. That's really Really remarkable. Um,
1: Because one of the things that I want people to know is that Phyllis Wheatley did not arrive in Boston in mm -hmm. 1761. A trafficked African child whose name is now lost to the historical record arrived in Boston.
0: Right. Right let's let's pick up um, with that in just a minute. I actually want to begin not at the beginning, but if we could begin at the end, your volume concludes with an essay, considering your sources, introducing the, research that you've done. Um, mm. it's an essay of 20 pages and 51 footnotes. So as a, as a history, oh, and I you, looked can't, at that. you counted, <laughs> I looked at it, man. <laughs> and I thought this in was Chicago really
1: Chicago too. in Chicago Chicago, format. Chicago is the bane of my existence. Oh, I, but oh, it, man. it was but so hard a,
0: for a reader. That is just, I mean, that is gold. I, I just, I really admired the um, level of scholarship, um, and I wondered if you could share a little bit with us about your research and your writing process for this book.
1: Mm. Well, this essay is really a revised, um, I mean, very much revised, but it is a revised essay um, that I wrote for a non-academic audience um that was published in a um anthology called The Fire This Time um uh i think it's new a new generation of african americans write about race i don't know how new i was because i was <laughs> i was in my late 40s so um but that was flattering um and so i had been asked to write this Essay for lay people, as it were. And, I, and and the the essay was really about the way that people had considered not only Phyllis Wheatley Peters, but her husband. And how it was the, the gaps in the research and then and then some outright lies. Mm -hmm. on um, John Peters that had actually led me to decide that I was going to write a book on Phyllis Wheatley Peters because I said, you know, it was clear that people weren't really, um, except for, again, Catherine Clay Bessard, a couple of other poets, June Jordan and Robert Hayden, people weren't really looking at her as a person Right Who loved, who had lost, who had gone through trauma, yeah again, with the exception of those people, they were basically using her as a prop to move ideas about the time around, and um <clears throat> excuse me i i I didn't like that, and so. Um One of the things that I found out when I was at the American Antiquarian Society, I had a barren artist fellowship back in two thousand and nine the summer of two thousand and nine and um I had a mentor, Caroline Sloat, who was then um working um as a researcher for the American Antiquarian Society. She's since now retired, and she was my mentor. And she really looked beyond my being a poet, right? right. Um, and there were other people there, um, people who were there on the, you know, research scholarships, the scholarly scholarships, as it were, who looked at me as more than a poet. Um, and I, you know, and I encountered some other people who would, whenever they would, you know, despite the research discoveries that I shared with people, there were a few people who would introduce me to others and say, "I don't raise a poet." That's that's what they would never say. <clears throat> I don't raise a poet who has discovered X, Y, and Z, or I would right. say encountered, right? Encountered, right. Um, because you know you don't discover it; it's always been there. So, I. I'll go on ahead.
0: But to put the pieces together, right? That that mm-hmm. can be a, a real gift to the scholarly community to say these pieces, if we put them together in this way, actually requires us to rethink what, we, what we've assumed. It about
1: requires this us to rethink and it requires us to um, to look at the history in a different way. Right. <clears throat> and so I I guess it was about halfway through when Miss Caroline, that's what I called her. She hated when I called her Miss Caroline, but she, you know, she was <laughs> older than I was and I'm from the deep south and You know, I'm just not raised to be calling older people, you know, by their first name. We, we, and and that's very, you know, that's something very African diasporic as well. We, you know, we really do have elder reverence in African American communities as well as African communities. So, Miss Caroline had told me, she said, you know, you need to go to Waltham, to the Northeast um, uh, National Archives in Waltham, Massachusetts. And I, I really didn't want to because she was talking about microfiche. Um, you know, when I'm when I'm cooking something, my you know, my nemesis is whipped egg whites. <laughs> and when I'm doing research, my nemesis <laughs> is microfiche. Oh, same. It, it, <laughs> it, it, it really makes me nauseated, like the way that you have to right. And so I was like, Miss Caroline, I don't like microfiche. And she said, do you want to be an historian or not? Right. So, you know, I didn't want to disappoint her. Right. So I, I got my little, you know, 2020, uh, uh, 2001 at that time. Um, I love that car, like a child Pontiac Sunfire and I put it in the road and, um, I, I drove to Waltham. I actually drove up and down the Eastern Seaboard during that month. I went to um, Newport, Rhode Island. I went to um, Salem, Massachusetts to the uh, Peabody um, Museum. I, I mean, I went everywhere. I went to Boston. I went everywhere. And so when I got to Waltham, Um, And I was, you know, on that microfiche and, you know, sort of swallowing my nausea. I saw John Peter's name on the 1790 census. And um, which is the Boston census, uh, census, Suffolk County. And he and I and I went back and forth and I went back and forth looking for another John Peter's. Or looking for another Negro, John Peters. Right. There was only one John Peters on the entire census. And this was confusing to me because in the um, biography that we attribute to Margaretta Matilda O'Dell memoir and poems um, of Phyllis Wheatley, um, she or whoever, you know, <laughs> wrote the, the memoir, because it's, it's published anonymously, said that John Peters had moved further south after the death of his wife. So that was really confusing. Right. And so, you know, I took pictures of the, um, you know, I bought my little digital camera. I bought my camera while I was there in Massachusetts. I noticed that everybody else had their little digital camera. So I took pictures, you know, with my digital camera of the pages. And then I drove back to, um, Westa, which is where, um, the American Antiquarian Society is. And, um, the next day, uh, at lunch, which was when all of the um, the fellows would meet um, with Miss Caroline, I told her about what had happened, and she had already began to uh, begun rather to nudge me toward writing a book, right? Okay, of poetry. Because I had um, read some of my um, poems that had previously been written before I had come to um, Worcester, um, and one of them was about uh, Susanna Wheatley and the three children that she had lost when the children were in very early childhood mm-hmm. and, um, and I had um, discussed, you know, my in progress research at that time um, about the fact that um, uh, the little girl who would be renamed Phyllis Wheatley was around the same age as um, Sarah Wheatley was. Um, uh Susanna and John Wheatley's um child, uh, she was around that same age. Phyllis was when the little girl had died. Oh. They had they yes, they had on the um the grave her exact age. And I had noticed that other um uh whites in Massachusetts um would would do that they would they would have the exact age of their child, right. right? And so Sarah was seven years, nine months and eighteen days.
0: Oh my God.
1: And oh. that made that began to make sense, right
0: right
1: that um, so there were things in the the biography that we attribute to Odell that did sort of line up. Right, so the fact that um, Miss Phyllis would have been the little girl would have been around the age where she would have lost uh, her 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 two front teeth, right? Yeah. And that um, uh, Susanna Wheatley uh, had lost three children in childhood. So there were things that that had lined up, right? But there were other things that did not. And so when I told um, Miss Caroline about the fact that I had um, seen John Peter's name, it was, it it was, it was, you know, near Bedlam as Bedlam as you can get with a group mm-hmm. of historians. Right. And they were like, are you kidding? on I said, yes, I saw it. I took pictures and they were like, oh, wow. You know, so all of my crew, Right, uh, uh, who, who was there? Um, Tanya Mears, uh, Meredith Newman, Jonathan Sension, and Emily Polly. Paul Erickson was then director of academic programs, so he didn't, you know, he didn't have lunch with us, right? Right. But he's also part of of that crew from that year. Sure. So the four who were at lunch were. I mean, it was it was really something. And that was the moment when I realized that, um, and I don't, I hesitate to use the word just, because I think that art brings something to history in the same way that history brings something to art. So I don't want to say in that moment I realized I wasn't just a poet, but I will say in that moment I realized, in addition to being a poet, that i was on the road to becoming a scholar and it was it was it was it was something that kind of hit me with a thunderclap um so i so i so i saw that and then um you know i saw a couple of other things um and so then when I wrote the essay for The Fire This Time, um, which includes very well-known African-American creative writers, and, and, I, and then I always I'll always say, and me, <laughs> because I, I don't really you know, have the reputation of Kevin Young, who's now you know, the director of the Schomburg or you know, Jasmine Ward who's the only African-American woman or might be only African-American to have won two um, National Book Awards. But she's definitely the only. But at that time, she had won one. Right. That was still pretty much of a big deal. But I wrote about um, racism, uh, the racism that I encountered in the Odale memoir, the memoir that's attributed to O'Dale. Right. and, and then, um, three years later, when I was finally finishing up the book of poetry, which you know, had taken me, uh, you know, 15 years of research, um, I was um, doing uh, what I do whenever I finish a book, obsessively reading from mistakes, checking, you know all of that, which w- was, of course, more complicated, given that this had a scholarly afterward and then notes and all of that. Right. And I went back to do um, last minute uh, research, which you know you can do some or ar- archival research. You know, obviously not if you're you know really doing a deep dive, but there are some archival sources. That are now uh, available online. Sure. So I went back and I looked up the Odell memoir, which I had sort of thrown out there because no one had ever done a genealogy—not a real genealogy on Odell. They had simply said in a footnote in the Massachusetts, the proceedings of the Massachusetts um, Historical Society. Well, yeah, we know that she's related to Susanna Wheatley. Ah, uh, through da 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 da, and that was it. We we had never received a genealogy at that point. We now have one, but I know that there wouldn't have. I mean, I try not to be arrogant in the in the field of history, right? But I do not believe that we would have ever received a genealogy on Margaretta Matilda Odell had I not, you know, thrown down a gauntlet, right? about the problems that I saw. And so then when I was doing the final, you know, sort of pass through on the manuscript and I, and I looked up the Odell memoir, I saw another memoir by Benjamin Bussy Thatcher. And I had noticed that I had seen sort of like a cursory mention of him, I think it was in the John Shields, one of the John Shields uh books on Miss Phyllis, and I had ignored it um, which, you know, to my own detriment, I had ignored that Benjamin Bussy Thatcher had written a memoir, and so when I went and I saw the Thatcher memoir, which was also on that um North Carolina. Um, University of North Carolina, the documenting the American South. Oh, sure. Um, I saw his memoir and it was nearly identical. And I thought somebody plagiarized. Right. But which one? <laughs> and that's as far as I, I, I got then. You know, I, I've done some more research. I mean, we can talk about it if you want to, but that was as far as I got. But I knew something was fishy. Um, and then I also noticed, um, and this is one of the things, you know, that I want to, to get more formal training as an historian because the details, I had ignored those details. And the other detail was that Odell's name never appeared on the memoir. Right, it was anonymously. Thatcher's name appeared on his memoir, right? But in the ad, there's there's no name for the memoir that is supposed to be written by a Wheatley relative, right? And so Mm -hmm. I thought, well, how did Odell's name get attached? And again, it got attached because of a footnote that no one had, you know, no one really has done steel, yeah. um any kind of research on, you know, I mean, nobody has found the smoking gun, as it were. They haven't found um, a manuscript. They haven't found the printer's records. They haven't, whatever. So at this point, yeah. I just... I just uh, whenever I refer to it, I say the supposed Odell memoir, or you know, in print I put in brackets and then question mark after right. Odell's name, which really annoys some people. But you know, it is what it is.
0: I mean, that's the historical process, right? If you're <laughs> if you're not saying, how do you know you know this? That's <laughs> Well, um, it
1: is. So- it is Jennifer. How do you know you know this? Right? How do you and know you and and, and yeah. you know, I don't. And I think that particularly what is annoying me as an African-American woman is the fact that people are not really doing the due diligence around this that they would if this was a white woman Mm -hmm. or a white man. And I've talked about that, right? That's very distressing to me that people just assume Well, you know, somebody said that John Peters was janky and trifling and wouldn't work and, you know, and they were white. So there you go.
0: Well, and And, even um, worse, that there's an assumption that there won't be records, that we can't know that. And so you mm -hmm, allow that kind mm -hmm. of laziness to kick in when we have mm -hmm. entire fields dedicated to recovering the evidence for folks who maybe don't leave as many personal archives, right?
1: Exactly. That's a a really good point. And, you know, the whole thing about John Peters and um, there have been some people who sort of, you know, made fun of him or, you know, or nearly made fun of him when they um, they talk about the fact that he was a lawyer. Mm -hmm. okay, and um, that, you know, he was suing people who owed him money. But what a lot of people don't know who have not also done research on early Africa mm-hmm. is that when we look at Mungo park's narrative, and of co- of course you know Mungo Park was a uh, white British man you know who brought his own white supremacist uh, ideology and racism to the continent. but when Mungo Park um wrote about the Gambia in his narrative um of the late uh eighteenth century. he talked about how there were um in the villages there were courts right in villages, and that there were Muslim clerics okay there were muslim barristers rather not clerics there were you know lawyers right who would represent people in these african villages so i do think that the missing link is that we have to have more people who are you know not just looking at issues like art and you know food ways and that kind of stuff but who are also looking at other aspects of African life. Not that foodways aren't incredibly important, right? Right. But that draw connections between what Africans were doing in the 18th century and what Blacks in America who were not, you know, who were still Africans, Right. And what right. they were doing. And so and, and also the other thing is that people want to talk about, you know, how nice the Wheatleys were for teaching um, the little girl how to read and write. And I think, you know, yes, it's nice. But I also think that this is this is what you're supposed to do with children. And, and, and you're supposed to be nice to children that that shouldn't be a miraculous thing. Right. Right. Just because that's a little black girl doesn't mean that it's miraculous, right? You know, people are, that's, that's human nature, right? But that um, little Muslim girls were also taught to read the Quran and to write. Right. And so there is that legacy, that heritage. And I think that we need to begin to consider um, the African part of not just her life, but John Peter's life when when we begin to sort of uh, construct um, a way of looking at her.
0: And that, I think, helps us bring that into American history, Ideally,
1: mm-hmm,
0: right mm-hmm, through mm-hmm, those individuals, mm-hmm. we begin to say it's not just one individual. This is this is a bigger um, a bigger set of systems, right? That arrives in the North American continent that really uh, changes the course of every society—Native um, American, European, mm-hmm. and African societies—that run against each other here. So it was just announced that the age of Phyllis will be the common read of the Society of (laughs) Early Americanists in 2021. Congratulations.
1: Thank you so much. I cry like a fool when (laughs) (laughs) I was so, I was so shocked and so happy, you know, Um, and so honored, you know, this work that I had done, you know. Yeah. I don't want to start crying (laughs) 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 because I've been crying off and on since, you know, they 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 let me know, you know, it's it's
0: I think it's just wonderful news for the society, Mm -hmm. for all of the folks who will get a chance to read this. Um, You'll also be one of the keynote speakers at that conference. Right. Um, Mm -hmm.
1: I'll be giving a plenary reading a
0: plenary from,
1: from the book. Great. Mm-hmm. That's, that's yeah, whatever that means, right? <laughs> uh, I'll be giving, you know, that's a nice little fancy term. I will have on a cute outfit. Um, Excellent. I'll be giving that reading. And then there'll be a colloquium with um, college and university professors and students. Great. Um, And I love that. I love working with the young folk and sort of breaking down... Um, you know, a, a concepts and ideas um, into manageable bits. That's what I do. And I, lo- I love that with the young people um, to interact with them. And, and the other reason I love it is because their professors have been trying to get them to look at particular concepts and ideas as important right and um you know there's a there's a place in the bible i forgot which uh which which verse it is but it talks about a prophet is never you know appreciated never honored in his own land right, right? so so i noticed that myself it's not until a visitor comes in and a visitor says this is important Right, and then my students will look at me like, "Yeah, Professor Jefferson, you tried to tell us, and I'm like, I tried to tell you, so i I love you know being able to meet with the kids and to reinforce what their own professors have spoken about. That that's 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 one of the great joys of of when I when I um you know do visits and that kind of stuff. So yes and then I'll be on a um on a featured panel as well talking about Phyllis Wheatley Peters.
0: Great. Oh so lots really of exciting.
1: lots of work. Yes. <laughs> I'm pretty excited, yes.
0: Well congratulations. And I think with that why don't we move to a reading of a poem or two. Okay.
1: Okay. So um, I'm going to read from mothering number one and mothering number two. Great. Is that all right? Sounds okay. wonderful. So let me just give a little background. So mothering number one is from um, the section of the book that begins the book with the child, uh, who I call uh, Gune. And Gune simply means, you know, little child
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, in like, you know, baby child or baby girl, um, you know, something like that in the Wolof language of um, the Senegambia region. Right. And Miss Phyllis, uh, when she began reading poetry, uh, writing poetry, rather, identified herself as um from being from the Gambia. So I imagined this. Uh, I imagined her also as an African Muslim since the Gambia was a a Muslim region. And so this is mothering number one. This is the day that this child is born. The other thing is, um, Yai means mother in the Wolof language. Mothering number one. Yai, some place in the Gambia, circa seventeen fifty-three. After the afterbirth is delivered, the mother stops holding her breath. The midwife gives what came before her: just wash pain, her insanity, pain and undeserved pain, uh, God-giving pain. Oh, oh. Oh, pain, drum-talking pain, witnessing pain. Allah, a mother offers you this gift. Praise, you find it acceptable. Her living pain, her creature pain, her pretty little baby pain. The second poem is, um, occurs after the little girl, the child, um, has survived the horrific middle passage, um, in a slave ship, um, across, um, the Atlantic ocean. And I imagine that it is Susanna Wheatley, who is the wife of a, uh, prosperous Boston merchant who purchases um, a little girl, a little African girl um, at the harbor uh, that day in summer 1761. This is mothering number two. Susanna Wheatley, Boston Harbor, summer 1761. And so Because the little girl was bony and frail, Mistress Wheatley gained her for a trifling, passing by the other slaves from the brig called Phyllis. The white woman's mind muddled by what the light revealed, a seven-year-old, naked, dark body there for every sailor to lay his shameless eyes upon, a child the age of her dead little girl. I'm trying to both see and discard that day. As when I stood over the open casket of an old man, counting the lines on his face, grieving yet perverse, refusing to believe that hours from then he'd be cranked down into the grave. And so... The lady tarried in front of the sickly child, distracted by the gulls screaming at port, their shadows dogging the constant sea. They were drawn by the stink of a slave ship, by lice in unwashed heads of hair. And so she bought that child, not someone older with muscles, strong enough to carry a servant's burden. That was the moment. A humming, epic page. That one. In the carriage, a mothering gesture. Finger beneath a chin. Lifting the face up to trust. The fickle air between them. Almost love. She took the child into her home, fed and bathed her, deciphered the naps on her head, dressed her in strange garments, gratitude and slavery. And so...
0: Thank you so much. I think these two poems for me really... um, these were what hooked me. (laughs) I just, I could not put the book down after those two really sunk into me, both the, the love and power of connection that you so quickly establish between this family in Africa and how their world is blown apart. This child's world is blown apart and she has to take the pieces and put something together as after she's trafficked across the ocean. Um, Um, I, I want to thank you so much for the, that gift of the, the real solidity, the emotional solidity that you've, um, you've really created around this historical individual, but you, you, you make her so compelling to me that now I've got this reading jag where I have to read everything Phyllis Wheatley has, has written. I just, um, I'm tearing up here.
1: I am too. It's okay. Oh I mean, okay. I, I, um, you know, yeah, I think about it. I think about that little girl and, um, and I, and I, and you know, sh- The the grown woman that was Phyllis Wheatley-Peters mothered me across the centuries. Yeah. You know, she made this space possible for me. And and not just as a poet, as an intellectual, as an academic, you know. um, She gave this gift to me, and I wanted to give this gift back to her. You know, to do what nobody had ever done, to acknowledge her parents. Right. Right? People have erased those people. You know, and she never did. I mean, she she has that point where she um, you know, the poem that's to the to the right um uh to William, the right Earl of Dartmouth. And yes. she says, you know, what what pangs excruciating must molest? What sorrows labor in my parents' breast? So she never forgot those people, but we forgot them. And it wasn't, you know, I forgot them until, you know, I began to think about it. And I do, you know, I mean, I know one of the things about being an academic is you're not supposed to talk about mysticism or spirituality, but I am an Africana mystic. And I do believe that I was chosen to do this work, as others have been chosen to do the work of going into the archives. And I mean, we're all chosen in different ways. I don't think I'm any more special than anybody else. But this was my charge.
0: Right. Right.
1: You know? Yes. So I do. I tear up and I'm going to tear up. You know, I always bring a, a you know, handkerchief with me. I'm going to tear up when I read, you know, the Society of Early Americanists. That probably be the first time they ever see somebody who's a scholar, you know, start crying on stage. But it is what it is. <laughs>
0: It's It's, a new day. (laughs) It's heavy stuff. I mean, if you're not willing to really get in there. (laughs) Right.
1: And if I don't cry while I'm writing it, how can I expect somebody else to feel something? Right. You know, if I don't feel it, how can I expect somebody else to feel it? Yeah. Um, And I'm not done, you know, with Miss Phyllis. Oh, you know, good. I'm not done. <laughs> I have essays, you know, and then somebody's going, you know, somebody's going to find something. And that is, I yeah. think, the biggest thing is I want people to go back to the archives mm-hmm. because as one of my good friends, uh, Jonathan Sension said to me, um, he does print culture, African-American print culture. And he said to me, that second manuscript, that was never published that's got to be floating around someplace
0: yeah somebody has that in an attic somebody
1: has there. that in their in their attic or in a you know in a you know, somebody's got it. Just like you know, historians used to say that Africans had no literature, and then they found all of those manuscripts bur- buried in that that guy's that African librarian's backyard, right. right? Somebody's keeping it, and 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 it's not just about her. But the more we learn about her, the more we learn about African Americans, what they brought. Um, And we don't just look at them as victims, which is one of the reasons that, you know, I wrote the section on black male participation in the um, American revolution.
0: Oh, right. Yeah. That's such a great section.
1: I I just, you know, I think about it and I'm like, how come nobody's ever made a movie about this? Mm -hmm. You know, it could be, you know, one of those swashbuckling, you know, movies that they make for cisgender heterosexual man, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Lots of people getting killed, but you know, all of that, you know, and and, and then I look at Alato Equiano. I mean, whether or not he was born in South Carolina, right? But right. when you look at his narrative and it, you know, so much takes place on the
0: sea. Oh, yeah. And there are
1: pirates. And I'm yeah. like, you know, let's let's open our idea of what enslaved life was, right. you know, instead of, you know, a fake Negro spiritual, mm-hmm. right? I get so tired of those fake Negro spirituals, right? And you're like, <laughs> we just didn't have those in the 18th century. Can we, you know, <laughs> change that, right? But, you know, this is really exciting. And I, when you think about her life and all that she lived, the, all of those eras, right? Yeah. So I mean, certainly it's tragic that she died around the age of 31, 30 or 31. But when you think about all that she um, experienced, the good and the bad, I mean, she experienced what somebody that was 85 or 90 years old, like there was so much happening and, you know, so much going on. And um, I, I just find her fascinating and wonderful, you
0: know. I think you help everybody see how fascinating of a character she is and what a talented poet, um, and what what tremendous work she does mm-hmm. um, moving between cultures and really mm-hmm. uniting them in her in her poetry. Um I have one last question for you, because I think, unfortunately, we're almost out of time. I but- talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> great stuff, right? Um, so what are what are you working on now, Anna Ray? What's your next big project?
1: Well, okay. So right now I'm waiting on edits on a novel that is under contract with um, Harper, um, which is one of the... Um, Umbrella Companies with Collins, So this is my, you know, sort of my first, um, a, um, you know, national thing where I'm hoping a lot of people will read. Not very many people read poetry. So that's why I've just been really excited about, you know, people reading um, The Age of Phyllis. So that novel, uh, if God says the same, will be coming out in May 2021. And it's called The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. And it's a coming-of-age story about a young African American woman uh, whose family is in the South. And then I am beginning to nibble around the edges of a an essay collection, uh, personal uh, essays that uh, interrogate and intersect with uh, early African. And early African American history, and my own family history, and um, it's always really scary when you start a new project. You feel kind of goofy, and you know who's going to read this. But, um, but that—that's what I'm doing. And 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 uh, at least one of those essays will be about Miss Phyllis. So again, I'm not done with her. Uh, I think she's just you know going to be with me forever. And
0: oh, that's wonderful! Nice. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much. Um, I, I hope that everybody can kind of take a minute to check out the, the book. We'll um, provide a link on the podcast. And, uh, and I hope that we can talk again soon.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. I really appreciate you.
0: Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.